Life is good in Los Angeles. It's paradise on Earth. <laughs> That's what they tell you anyway. Because they're selling an image. They're selling it through movies, radio, and television. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? And it's a podcast where we talk about movies. And specifically, we talk about a movie that at least one of us has never seen before. Uh, I am your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. Um, This is episode number 43. And joining me this week, I have Shane Maddox. Well, hello, Travis. How are you doing? I am doing quite well. Uh, So this week, we are talking about the 1997 movie, uh, L.A. Confidential. Starring Guy Pierce, Russell Crowe, and a bunch of other people. Uh, Shane, you had never seen this movie before. Nope, and watching it now, I don't remember anything about it. So I, yeah, I can say that honestly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I chose this movie this week as uh, a way to start off. I want to do some award-winning films. The Oscars are coming up. It's award season. And I thought it would be kind of fun to hit the major Oscar categories and pick a film that won in each of them. Uh, and watch that and find somebody who hadn't seen it before. So this film won two Oscars. Um, it won Best Supporting Actress for Kim Basinger, and it won Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, and it was a big, it was a nominated for like nine different Oscars that year. Uh, lost out to a bunch of them to Titanic. Uh, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, that movie swept everything that year. But uh, yeah, so I always like to start with the cast and Kim Basinger being one of them. She won an Oscar for this. Uh, it's funny because she's very good, and but it didn't lead to a huge change in her career um, like Oscars can do sometimes. However, uh, it also didn't, she didn't fall victim to like the Oscar curse like uh, say a Cuba Gooden Jr. had. Uh, mm. You know, <laughs> she's had a solid career and she's great hey. in this. Hey, Snow Dogs was great. <laughs> you keep telling yourself that. No, that's one I haven't seen either. <laughs> uh, neither have I, so that's fine. <laughs> um, no, she she was great in this, uh, playing Lynn Bracken, um, which is an interesting character because she is uh, from a small town in Arizona, moves to L.A. and becomes a prostitute, a high high class escort, as they like to be called. Um, but the the thing about it is she looks like Veronica Lake. Um, and but she wasn't cut like the others. Right. That's important. Got to remember that. Uh, but, man, <laughs> what a cast. So you have, uh, I mentioned Guy Pearce and Russell Crowe. Uh, and this was early in both of their careers. Um, I think Guy Pearce was 29 when oh this was gosh. made. And if I remember right, the only thing I can think of, I didn't know him that well um, at this point. But the only thing I could think of from before this was uh, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I had heard about but had never seen that he was in. Because this was pre-Memento. This was pre-a lot of stuff. Oh, wow. Uh, Memento was 2000. Let's see. What had he done before this? 1997, L.A. Confidential. Um... Yeah, I think Memento was the first thing I saw him in. Yeah, nothing you've ever heard of before this. I mean, there's a lot of... uh, Australian TV, I think a lot of Australian movies up until that point. And so this was kind of his big breakthrough. Um, he did this, and then 
uh, a couple years later was Ravenous and Rules of Engagement, and then Memento, Count of Monte Cristo. Um, right. You know, and he's he's gone on to have quite a career. I like Guy Pierce a lot. Um, I've always enjoyed yeah. him as an actor. Uh, this was, first of all, does an amazing American accent, right? I wait. He's not American. I actually don't know if I knew this. <laughs> yeah, no, he's uh, he's Aussie. It always surprised me every time. He's an he's an Aussie. Um, he and Russell Crowe. Well, technically Russell Crowe's a Kiwi, but you know. Oh uh, right. Um, That's. Yeah. But he, he yeah. I know Russell Crowe spent a lot of time in Australia too. But however, I mean both of them do great American accents. But yeah, Guy Pierce, you wouldn't you wouldn't guess that. Because if you look, like his first first few movies that were in the US were this, Ravenous, which granted Ravenous he doesn't speak a whole lot in. Uh it was a very low dialogue movie for him. But then Memento, um and he does a great American accent. And I liked him in this. He played that part of like the straight laced Boy Scout really well. Right. And, um, I mean, because that, that's what he was. And then you have Russell Crowe playing the opposite end of it, where he's like, he's the blunt instrument. You know, he's just Hulk smash all the time. That was one of your notes I saw. And that, that made yeah. me laugh. Do you, do you think they're like both like this in real life? <laughs> you know, I think Russell Crowe's a lot more like Bud White than, uh, than Guy <laughs> Pierce is like Ed Which, Exley. by the way, that's another one of my notes is Bud White at the whole, I, as soon as I heard that, I'm like, sounds an awful lot like a certain alcoholic beverage. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> uh, Wendell. I, I like that his name was Wendell. Uh, but Russell mm-hmm. Crowe, um, this was also an early one for him in the U.S. Uh, I think prior to this, I know I had I had seen the name Russell Crowe because for a, a while there was, um, do you remember a movie called Virtuosity with Denzel Washington? I know the name. I don't remember too much about it. Yeah, I, I haven't really seen it that I can remember. However... Back in, it came out in 1995, and back then you would always see, um, if uh, when I'd scroll through cable channels, it'd be the cable channel that was just what's playing on pay-per-view, like the trailers over and over. And I just remember seeing this trailer for Virtuosity all the time, and they keep showing. He played a character named Sid 6.7 in that movie. Okay. And he had done, he had done The Quick and the Dead before, um, L.A. Confidential. And... That was kind of his first real um, American film. So this was really the second one, and this was kind of his uh, coming out party because after this, it was, um, what, the next two years later was Mystery Alaska, then The Insider, and then Gladiator. So, Oh, and, and it, uh, Gladiator was the first time I recognized him even. Mm-hmm. Kinda... And the only reason I knew him going into Gladiator was from L.A. Confidential, um, but I didn't know okay. much about him. Um but yeah, uh, like I had no idea that he was Australian or New Zealander or whatever. Right. Um, and but yeah, he's great. James James Cromwell as Captain Dudley Smith. Uh, I'll watch anything he's in. He's wonderful. Yeah. Very tall. Good. Very tall. And you 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 get a sense yeah. of how tall he is when he's in a scene with Russell Crowe. Now Russell Crowe's not super tall. I think he's like five ten, mm-hmm. maybe six foot. But James Cromwell just towers over him and towers over everybody. I remember that from the the. I think it was apparent to me in the season of Twenty Four that he was in. Mm, All of right. a sudden, I'm realizing just how tall that guy is. <laughs> yes, I think he's like six five or six six, and just tall, lanky, doing a bit of an Irish accent, just a just a touch of Irish in there. Um, he really towered above those barnyard animals and Babe, though. <laughs> yes, he did. 
Uh, I did mention Kim Basinger, um, Danny DeVito as uh, as Sid Hudgens. Uh, love Danny DeVito, always. Um, you saw my com- my comment in there about that one. Oh yeah, yep. He is a he national is- treasure. It is absolutely. It is true. <laughs> so there's been a thing going around on Twitter in the last couple of weeks where you know. Hey, pick a movie and keep one actor and replace the rest of them with Muppets. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah. My pick was this movie, Keep Danny DeVito. Make the rest of the cast <laughs> Muppets. Perfect. How ma- perfect. That would be so good to see. <laughs> so does Miss Piggy become uh, Lynn, uh, the Lynn character? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, Miss be. Piggy plays Lynn Bracken. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, Danny DeVito. David Strathairn. Uh, who went on to do um, things like Good Night and Good Luck. He, you know, again, small part. I mean, him and DeVito even doesn't have a very big part in this, but they're memorable. Like, there's something about David Strait here, and he he just plays, he can play that, like, sophisticated type of uh, personality really, really well. And for the f- couple of scenes that he's in, he really nails it. Oh, um, this is the the other Pierce guy. Yeah, Pierce Patchett. Okay. Um, I say two pierces, but yeah, just one in the movie itself. <laughs> yes. Uh, Ron Rifkin, um, character actor. I've seen him in a lot of stuff. Matt McCoy um, as Badge of Honor star Brett Chase. Uh, I like that. And I saw you You talked about... Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I forgot. I know from. <laughs> yeah, I forgot that... Because uh, I haven't really watched much of Silicon Valley. Um, yeah, I only watched maybe the first two seasons, but that's what I recognized him from was the... Uh, uh, well, let's just say he plays a lawyer in that. Um, and uh, I guess I don't really want to spoil anything beyond that if you haven't seen it. <laughs> sure. No, no problem. Um, Paul Gilfoyle plays Mickey Cohen. He doesn't have a single line in the movie. He's in the movie at the very beginning of it, but I always remember him because he was on CSI for, I think, 15 years or however however long it was on the air. Gilfoyle? Uh, that's another uh, Silicon Valley reference. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. Well, I don't know. Was that the guy's name? Uh, one of the characters' names? The guy with the glasses? Anyway. Uh, might have been. Okay. <laughs> um, what was another one? There was somebody else. Oh, there was an, uh, another gladiator connection. One of the um, one of the police officers that works for Captain Smith uh, was okay. Quintus in Gladiator. And I always, I don't know what it is, why, like, my brain remembers him from that movie. But he was one of the other generals in Gladiator. And again, small part in that. He's got a small part in this. But every time I see him, I just think of Quintus. He's a big guy? Um, No, he was... So in the scene where um, Exley and Vincennes show up at the house and uh, they're like, you know, crap, somebody's here. And they find the shotguns in the car, right? That the guys... Yeah. They plant the shotguns in the car. The two officers that are there, the one wearing a hat... Um, okay. It's one of those my brain finds like these weird connections with actors all the time. In fact, I was right. looking through the cast list because I like to try and connect actors to previous movies we've covered on this show. Mm-hmm. I can't find anybody. And so I don't know if it's just that I'm not digging deep enough or I just can't put anybody. I mean, 43 episodes in now and That's no, crazy. nobody. <laughs> not not even a, a crew member at all? Oh, I'm sure there's probably a crew member in there somewhere. <laughs> But actor-wise, like, I, I don't believe we've done anything with Russell Crowe yet. I don't think I've done anything with Guy Pierce. I'd have to no look Star back. Star Trek connections? Yeah. No, I don't have Daryl's Star Trek machine. So, <laughs> um, Oh, one other. Uh, so there's a lot of, like, small roles where little people here and there. But um, Simon Baker as Matt Reynolds, a very young Simon Baker, also known as The Mentalist, uh, mm. if you remember that show. 
for a while. But he was super young in this. I think uh, God, he must have been like early 20s. 1969, so well, almost 30. He's almost the same age as uh, Guy Pierce, But he looks so young in there. He was the, uh, the actor that gets... Um, he was oh. the young actor that ends up getting uh, killed. That was um, that was Simon Baker, uh, and then um, Thomas Rosales Jr. Uh, and it's funny because that's a FilmSack connection. He, if you ever go to FilmSackStats.com, he is listed at, in the most FilmSack movies. He's always got like a bit part, and he was one of the. Uh, he was listed in the credits for this as first Mexican. So he's in the very beginning of the movie for Bloody Christmas. Okay. And I just, I see his name and I'm like, oh yeah, Thomas Rosales Jr. Yep, I've seen that name a few times. He he sort of, he's one of those go-to when you need um, a, a token Mexican in a movie. Uh, it seems like Hollywood always went to like him, uh, whether it was to play. He, he was, I shouldn't even say, uh, token Mexican isn't fair and is probably a terrible way to put that. Uh, henchman, Mook. Um, you know, one of those kind of guys that's just going to sure. be there and going to be in the background and maybe have a couple of lines. Um, similar to um, Ken Leong in the 80s. He was the, the guy with the Fu Manchu that was in every single action movie. Um, sure. And he's he's one of those guys that you don't know by name unless you're, you know, crazy like I am. But <laughs> you you see him immediately and you're like, I've seen that guy before. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's a Thomas Rosales Jr. for me. Uh, was one of those, but great cast. And I didn't touch on yet the the eight hundred pound gorilla, the uh, the monkey in the room is Kevin Spacey's in this as well. And uh, it it's really difficult to talk about Kevin Spacey right now because mm-hmm. phenomenally talented actor, amazing. This is two years after he won an Oscar for best supporting actor for uh, the Usual Suspects. Usual suspects, yeah. yeah, and you know. This was kind of right. He had done um, Usual Suspects and Seven already at this point. Um, You know, he's had a phenomenal career, and it has completely imploded in the last couple of years, and it turns out he is a terrible person. Um, And it's really sad because he's a great actor, but, man, is he just not not a good person and it's hard to separate the art from the artist because of what he's accused of and what's happened around it and kind of his his mentality towards it i don't know if you saw right. like the video that he put up talking about it and there's another one there's uh, another one oh great he recently put out yeah and it see he uh he's kind of packed on a little pounds at this point maybe but um whatever stress <laughs> I can only assume. Um, And then I saw literally the day I watched this that he was back in the news again for getting uh, acquitted or something of some one of those cases or something where one of the victims had died or I don't know. Oh, no. It's something like four of the five victims have died or something crazy like that. I I believe that's what I read. I I could be talking out of school there, but it's... Sounds like some Jeffrey Epstein style. Yeah, I know. It's a little crazy. Um what I did find anyway. interesting was in watching the movie, though, it made one of the lines in this movie a lot more predictive. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. this one. America isn't ready for the real me. 
didn't notice that one. Wow. I heard oh. I heard it, and I was like, oh, boy, that, that carries a lot more weight now uh, than it did in 1997. For me, it was him walking in the hotel room and calling for the kid. I thought that was a little... Yeah. Well, and then based on some of the things that have happened. Yeah. Then I was reading, uh, I was reading something earlier today from, I think it was like a year ago. It was Guy Pearson in an interview said that, um, he was a phenomenal actor, but he was kind of difficult to work with. And he was a little handsy with people on the set of LA confidential. And then, and then he made the line, uh, the quip of like, good thing I was 29 and not 14. I was like, Oh boy, guy, you better be uh head on a swivel now for a little while. Yes. Uh, you might get uh <laughs> you might get got, so be careful. Um but yeah, I, look, I, it's so difficult because this movie, Usual Suspects, Seven, those are three movies right there that not only do I have very fond memories of, but his performances in them are astounding. Right. And yet it's really difficult to say that I like I mean I can I can say that I like his performances, but knowing what I know now about him as a person, it's really tough. Um, and it's sad because he does have so much talent and a lot of charisma. And obviously that, you know, in a lot of ways helped him um, do the things that he did. But, you know, yep. he was he was yet another in a in an all star cast in this movie. Um, just I mean, straight up and down, a lot of great actors and then character actors. Um even down to like, uh, who was it that played? Um, oh, where is he? Graham Beckel as uh, Stensland um, is one of those character actors that is another one of those guys you see in something. You're like, oh yeah, I've seen him before. He's got a look. He's got an intensity in his look. The scene where he's uh, pouring all the booze into the eggnog, and then they they start telling him about what happened with the the Mexican prisoners that they brought in. Just the the look on his face, that intensity that he gets as he's like he's drunk. And he's pissed, and so like everybody get the hell out of my way as he just stalks his way down there. Is right. That's a really really good. He was in Pearl Harbor, leaving Las Vegas. Um, done a ton of stuff. Did we say by chance uh, the time period of this one? No. So okay. So this is set in 1953. Uh, is when this is set. 1953, L.A. Um, and I know, so you had you had some notes about that. And no, Alec Baldwin yeah. was not in this. I did see that in your notes. <laughs> but he was married to Kim Basinger at the time. Was that the deal? Yes, I'm pretty sure he was. Okay. That, um, I think that was my memory because I watched that Oscars that year, I think, and maybe he was sitting next door or something. Ah, there you go. Um, so, yeah, so 1950s... Um, and it's definitely one of those, uh, it's kind of that um, corrupt cops. And, and look, police officer, police work was very different at that time and a lot more stuff you could get away with than you can even now. Uh, and there's still stuff like that that goes on, sadly. Um, but it was even more kind of openly talked about amongst the officers, I think. So I don't think... I don't know necessarily that this is a completely accurate representation of it, but at the same time, it's probably more accurate than we would want to believe. Um, right. Talking about you know planting evidence, and I did think it was interesting how at the beginning of the movie, um, Captain Smith is talking to Exley, and he says, you know, look, would you plant evidence? Would you do this? Would you shoot somebody in the back that you know for a huh. fact is guilty? 
to mm-hmm. you know to stop something else from happening and he's like no 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 and what does he do at the end of the movie shoots him in the back uh, yes so a little foreshadowing and prediction there um but uh is really interesting so you had some things about uh the the time period in your notes you wanted to talk mm-hmm. about yeah well what well first off right off the bat um in one of the beginning scenes you've got was it sense uh what's his name again Stensley? Sten- stensland stensland is is russell crowe's partner at the beginning yes okay that that he's you know got open intoxicants in the in the vehicle as an officer first off i mean that's <laughs> yeah even uh, that doesn't fly nowadays for you know civilians let alone but uh interesting nonetheless uh what was some of the other things? I mean, some of the other things I had was just the fact that uh, Danny DeVito's busting into a house with, uh, and was that what I, I could, maybe I missed the part? Did they plant the uh, the pot in that particular house? No. So the way that it would work out um, with that, his character, um, and I want to come back to the open intoxicant thing, but I do want to talk about this. So, so Danny DeVito's character was uh, was writing for basically a, a rag. And he would create the story and then get Vincennes to do the bust. He would pay him off. And so he would get, uh, Vincennes would get the bust. DeVito uh, would get the story and it would all work out. But he didn't, he didn't plant the drugs. But what happened was he would get, you know, word like, hey, this person bought marijuana. Or he would get like a marijuana dealer you know, probably that he knew to sell to somebody and then tell him like, okay, Hey, I just sold marijuana to this person. So then he would go to Jack and say, Hey, this guy just bought some marijuana. I know where he's going to be. Here's 50 bucks for the tip. Go do your thing. I get the pictures. I get the exclusives. So it was a, Mm -hmm. you know, you scratch my back. I'll scratch yours thing. Yeah. It's just funny that he's breaking into the house to bust people for, for marijuana. (laughs) Giving today's, today's current, uh, you know, legalization. Yeah. I mean, and that uh, was matter. the thing. This was, this would have been like kind of height of reefer madness, right? So marijuana okay, possession yeah, that at sense. that time was a felony. Okay. Um, wow. Because they talk about the fact that uh, the, the actor, uh, Matt Reynolds character, you know, he, he went away to jail for like whatever it was, six months or something. Cause the movie takes place almost over a year between Christmas oh, and really? towards the end of it. Um, yeah. And they don't, you know, they don't do like a super, um, accurate or or um, extensive job of like showing the time passing. There's just like stuff happens. Mm-hmm. But if you think right. about it, after the bloody Christmas, um, Vincennes gets suspended and sent to Vice. So he's got to serve his suspension, then go to Vice and try to work his way back to narcotics. Yeah, so, that makes sense. It did seem like him and um, Kevin Spacey's character uh, were kind of in and out they made it seem like it was kind of quick, but yeah, it makes sense that time would have a fair amount of time would have passed at that point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you had all that kind of stuff going on and the open intoxicant thing. Yeah, you're right. That that doesn't fly today, but you know, cops would get away with a lot back then. I mean, hell, they probably didn't pay for any of the booze that they uh, took to the party at the beginning of it. Cause he said, uh, if you notice like the, the guy working Nick's liquor, was like, hey, you, you know, if I get, if uh, somebody tries to stick me up, you guys better be here, type of thing. So, I get a feeling they were getting either a heavy discount or not paying for it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But yeah, it's 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 an interesting movie and it's an interesting plot that really ties together very well. And I think that's why, you know, that was the other Oscar that it won was the best adapted screenplay. Um, and it it's one of those that I think gets better if, if you watch it more times because you start to pick up on little things um, that maybe you didn't catch the first time. Um, and just how they did a really neat job of... Um, and I mean neat, like orderly job of tying everything together and having all the different pieces play together. Um, and I like that because it's, you know, it's all about corrupt cops, right? Dudley Smith is corrupt. He's, he, find, he sees the power vacuum of uh, Mickey Cohen going to prison and he gets a couple of his former cops to start taking out lieutenants. Um, but the whole thing comes about because they found heroin and kept it type of thing um and you've got the mix in with the pierce patchett character and all the the stuff that he does and it just it all plays together really really well with like these power plays um it's really interesting and it gets better i think the more times i see it the one thing that kind of threw me is they show mickey cohen at the very beginning but then you never see him again right yeah he's in prison like that's that's basically and that's kind of what I was talking about with you got Paul Guilfoyle um playing him who you know nowadays like I say I know from uh CSI but uh I almost said CIS for some reason but CSI um <laughs> but he's in the movie and they make a big deal of it at the beginning but he's gone to jail and that's it and he's gone but that's sort of the point that's what catalyzed all of this was he got arrested they they pulled an Al Capone and they arrested him for tax evasion send him to jail so now there's he was the organized crime head of LA there is no more so Captain Smith apparently that was when he decided it was time to make his power play so he that's when he sets up the whole thing at the Victory Motel anybody knew that's coming into town because that was that whole thing was anybody that was coming into LA with any kind of a criminal background anywhere else they were cutting off immediately beating the hell out of and telling them to go home and get out of the city. He wanted to run the organized crime. So, but then there was basically the way that uh, it kind of plays out is his two enforcers, um, Buzz and Stens, find a bunch of heroin and decide that they want to keep it. Now, obviously, they have no way to unload it because the people that are running the organization that could unload it are the ones that are employing them. Uh, but that that was kind of how everything got set in motion. If you follow the the plot, essentially, that scene where they show like uh, it was like two or three um, in a row with the two man team taking out lieutenants. The second one, they grab that briefcase full of heroin. The way the timeline would work out is after that scene, um, Buzz and Stensland had their argument at his the the old lady's house. Mm-hmm. He kills Buzz, keeps the heroin for himself, and that's after that is when the Night Owl Cafe thing happens. Um, they put a hit on him to get that back. Right. So, whole lot of just like moving parts, and and there is a lot to try to keep up with. If uh, you know, because there's the whole subplot with the um, pinning it on uh, three the three young guys with their Merc coop. Um. Which again, also having, sorry, 
I was going to say, also having a character Bud and Buzz makes things a bit confusing. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, so, you know, and I try I try as much as I can to talk about characters with their character name on the show whenever yeah. I can, just just because it gives better context. But, you know, I'm basically... I'm glad you do. I'm terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, and so then they had, you know, obviously the subplot, and they're showing more of the corruptness of the police force with, um, like, they have the Night Owl Massacre, right? And then immediately they go to, hey, we got a, a hot tip, quote unquote, uh, that it was three young black men that were discharging shotguns in a park. And they were the ones that did it. Like, And, and I get that, right? Um, the captain's trying to pin it on them because they've got criminal records. Nobody's going to question it. Um, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's the corrupt cop um, aspect of everything. And... It really was, it really came down to, you've got the Boy Scout in Ed Exley who doesn't want to do anything. He wants to follow the letter of the law. And you had Bud who is, um, he's just that blunt weapon that, that I'm just going to, I'm going to hit everything. But he wants to be more than that, starts to, um, you know, kind of do his thing. And, uh, and they, they unload it from there. So, yeah, uh, it's a fantastic movie, um, mm-hmm. and it I can understand and see why it won uh, the Best Adapted Screenplay, because the screenplay is really good. The acting, too, I mean, I, I, some movies, you know, you look for maybe one or two moments where it's not super great, but uh, I, I don't think there were any moments where I was like, oh, that was acted terribly or something. None of that in this one. No, not at all. It was solid top to bottom. Like, I don't think there's a bad performance in the movie, to be honest with you. Nope. Um, I, I did find... So it's, it's not, a, not a problem with the script or anything, but I found it funny that um, the character of Captain Smith, his, his big thing on officers not being any good is um, fitness reports. So you notice the only time he talks derogatory about any officer, it's always, well, he got straight, and, and I captured it twice, but it was just his fitness reports. That's all he ever said. Because his mentality, he, he wanted um, cops like Bud. He wanted Bud Whites is what he wanted, just mm. mindless thugs that he could get to do his work. Right. Um, so I just I found that really funny. Um, and uh, I had... It's fun. It, it, it's interesting to me that with all the corruptness, all the, the terrible racism that happens in this um, between because they, they have racism in the beginning of it with the, the Mexicans and the, mm-hmm. all the cops hate them. Uh, and they're you know making up stories about what happened to the, you know, the other cops. Uh, they talk about, yeah, yeah. Did you hear about what happened to him? He's you know, he's in a coma. It's like, no, they're at home with bruises, but that doesn't matter. Um, and then <clears throat> you do it again with um, the three young guys. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that and yet the thing that probably bothered me the most was the line about the dogs where the guy uh, would he would kill dogs and uh, they said oh you got a problem with dogs and he responds with dogs got no reason to live that bothered me more than anything else in the damn movie mm. Be- partially because dogs are better than people but <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah it, you know it was the the idea behind the the story is it was 
showing the seedy underbelly of L.A. in the 50s, right? Because it was all glitz and glamour. I mean, they say that right in the beginning of the movie. Um, you know, they're, they're selling you an image, and it's not what you think it is. And it does such a good job of that. Right. Um, plus, I love, I love little things, like the scene where they go to... Um, Ed and Jack go to the diner, and they're confronting mm-hmm. Johnny Stompanato. And he says, yeah, you know, uh, a whore cut to look like uh, Lana Turner is still, still a hooker or whatever. And he's like, no, mm. no, that, that is Lana Turner. What? Yeah, that oh, that's Lana Turner. Yeah. <laughs> that was hilarious. <laughs> that was great. Um, little thing, like, because there's not a ton of humor in the movie, really. I mean, there there's some right. moments that make you chuckle, but that's, like, the, the closest they got to a straight-up joke in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, that it's really good stuff. So let's see. Uh, modern badges aren't labeled policeman. I don't. I don't know if they are. The, <laughs> yeah, because uh, oh, was that the paper badge? badge? Yeah, the like the paper ID that he had, uh, or was it the metal I was, badge? I was seeing a, a proper badge. Yeah, uh, actually had policeman on it, hmm. um, which I mean, clearly, at least in this movie, there weren't any. Uh, female police officers that I was aware of. I don't know if they were, you know, I, I don't, don't know the laws at the time. Like if there's laws against it or anything like that. Or... I don't know if there were laws against it, but I think it was like similar to the military where you didn't have female soldiers at that point. Right. It right. was any, any women that were working for the department were secretaries and clerks. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause there's not a lot of female characters in this. I mean, aside from Kim Basinger, she's got the most prominent female role. Then there was the, um, uh, Susie Leffert's mother mm-hmm. uh, and Susie Leffert's, neither one of them have a ton of screen time. Although the woman that played her mother um, was great. And and this is she the only thing really I can great. remember her from, but uh, she's great. Um, she was part of humor too, even though her daughter died at the beginning. She's like, oh yeah, wasn't sure if it was her at first. And, and then when the, when, uh, was it, yeah, when Russell Crowe, sorry, when Bud got, uh, oh, that's fine. <laughs> to you, can, house. <laughs> you can go either way. When he got in the house, um, even in there, she was, she was pretty funny. I thought, yeah. um, was it a rat? <laughs> like she, <laughs> she had to know there was right. something wasn't right there. I, I lied earlier. Uh, and I do have a connection to a movie that we've covered already. Okay. And it's a small one, but the police chief. The chief of police was also in, uh, he was, a, I think, a police captain in Zodiac, which is one we covered mm. a few weeks ago. So, uh, John Mahan, Mahan? Okay. Uh, M-A-H-O-N, I don't know, however you pronounce that. But he's another one of those character actors that shows up in a lot of things. He was in Armageddon, um, did some episodes of Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Uh, Star Trek Enterprise, like he's done a ton of stuff. Um, but I like. Who was him. he in uh, Armageddon? Uh, he played his character's name was Carl. Okay. I don't, I don't remember Carl. a Carl, but he was. <laughs> he he often I, I usually recognize him as either uh, some sort of like a high ranking police officer or police captain like that, or in the military. Um, he was right. in X Files. He was in a couple episodes as a general. Um, that kind of stuff. So, but he's great, and that that is our connection to a previous episode. So it was there. I just had to dig deeper, and Star Trek connection. Yeah. So <laughs> what do you know? Um, oh yeah, I you know, um, <laughs> I like 
I like this line. I guess being able to see isn't important as a detective. <laughs> yeah, it's all about yeah. appearance. Well, that's what. Uh, oh yeah. Um, so Guy, sorry, Guy Pierce's character is who again? <laughs> uh, Ed Exley. Ed Exley. Uh, yeah. So he gets promoted, and the first thing. Well, that's the same guy that that was the chief of police in that uh, in that scene that promotes him, or was that? Yeah, that was the chief. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and he's he says lose the glasses or something and he and immediately i'm like well they don't have context at the time right and no not, not to I my know, knowledge definitely not and and they even show scenes where he needs to wear them like he can't <laughs> he can't be oh yeah there's another scene where he's trying to shoot with the glasses off and that's <laughs> yeah real smart yeah thankfully he had him for the final shootout right uh which that's a great scene that's a great shootout too um because a movie like this, you know it's going to happen. It's like watching a Western knowing that there's going to be a big shootout at the end of it. But the way that that whole thing was shot and framed up, I love. Because one thing I like about an action scene or something like that is let let it be done in a way that I know where people are. Um, my biggest complaint about modern action movies, especially, and this is uh, a big sin that Michael Bay falls victim to, is the way that they're shot becomes style over substance and you get these great looking individual shots, but then mm -hmm. I have no idea where anyone is in relation to anybody else. And that was actually, I just recently watched Bumblebee um, and that was the first Transformers movie that I watched where I, I could follow the action really well and kind of know where everything was because mm -hmm. of the way it was shot. And the that shootout in this, you never lose perspective about where the the other people are in relationship to the building the the hotel building that they're in um there's that great shot where russell crowe comes popping out of the uh the little crawl space hole and mm -hmm. uh, blast with the shotgun that was great although how um, in the hell did he survive the end of that shootout so he got shot three times all right so that crawl space scene that's the one where the the tie goes flying up in the guy's face from yeah. underneath Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's hilarious um yeah but I, I know what you mean about the you know it stems back i think my my mom pointed this out years ago about um i believe she was talking about michael bay movies or at least his style seems like he, he likes to zoom in super far super close on people and and the action and yeah i, I agree that i don't even really think too much about it but that's a really good point <laughs> i well, a lot of his movies, I probably don't really know what direction things are going on and all yeah. that. Yeah, uh, so earlier Michael Bay movies, like The Rock is a great example of Michael Bay doing what he does, which is he visually he can make something breathtaking. Like he can make great individual shots, but he also had it in a way that was you could follow what was going on. You knew where people were. Um, I had the same problem with the remake of Clash of the Titans, I don't know if you saw that with Sam Worthington. I saw it. I saw it in 3D, uh, and that was not a great 3D experience. I know that much. <laughs> oh, I can't imagine because I saw it in 2D, and it was a barely a good 2D experience. Um, mm -hmm. My problems, my big problems with that movie are story based, but I, you know, I'll save that for a different day. But that that movie fell victim of its action scenes would get to a point where you're like, wait, what's going on? How are where are these people? Like, who are they fighting? Type of thing because you get these weird shapeless monsters or in the case of like a Transformers movie, the, the robots kind of all blend to look similar. 
And yeah, it there was this thing in the mid 2000s where all the action had to be up close. You didn't have wide yeah. shots anymore. And that can work in say one of the fights in the Bourne Ultimatum where it's just two people and it's mm. it all takes place in a small room. Okay, that can work there because there's not a lot of real estate for them to move around. So you're in that tight and it it it's okay, but from a filmmaking standpoint like if I've got a large open space and these giant things fighting each other, I need to have some perspective. I need to know where things are in relation to each other or I just am lost and it's sensory overload. Um, and this is an example of a movie that doesn't do that, right? It, it, it was a lot of wider shots. It wasn't a ton of up close. Obviously, there's also not a ton of choreography to the, to the movement. It's not hyperkinetic movements either, um, which helps. In that, but I I love the shootout at the end of this. I think it's a great, um, just kind of a, a nice mixture of ratcheting up. It's got some tension to it, um, as you they know what's going on. Like Bud knew going into it, it was a trap, but um, he went anyway, and so they kind of know what's gonna, they know what's coming, um, and they do a great job of fighting it all off. I just can't figure out how he survived because he got shot. What he he got shot in the shoulder, in the chest, and in the face. In the face. In the face, and he's fine. He like he lives. He's not fine. I shouldn't say that. He's shot got me two. in the face. <laughs> you know, Ed Exley got out of it. I mean, Guy Pierce just got shot in the shoulder. He was, he got, he took the easy road. Um, yeah, it's just uh, for a movie, movie that's not based around the action. Uh, that was a good amount of action in there. That, and then there's the other shootout. Um, when he goes to the apartment, and it ends with him pushing the shotgun into the elevator and, and shooting the guy. Um, that was another, yeah. that was another really interesting <laughs> action sequence. It's, I find it funny that that worked at the end. Like, yeah, but I also really like that. They didn't show it. Mm-hmm. They just show his reaction, which actually for me makes it, uh, I, I think more, um, more affecting that all you got was his reaction to what happened. It it does. Um, I did have a comment in here about know your target and beyond, though. Yeah, yo, no, <laughs> that definitely. One, that was. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I was half expecting. Oh my, who did he shoot? Oh, geez. But thankfully, it was it was not uh, it was not any innocent bystander, at least. <laughs> oh, uh, so <laughs> I'm watching this earlier, and uh, there's the scene where they go to Pierce Patchett's house. Uh, it's Bud mm-hmm. and Ed. Um, so it's Guy Pierce and Russell Crowe, and they, they're walking down. They come down the staircase, and they're checking the room. And for whatever reason, it, it hit me a lot more this time because I just watched um, Doom Annihilation. We were talking about that before we started the show. And that movie was terrible in part uh, because I mentioned earlier, but it looked cheap. But they also, they, they're supposed to be space marines, and they were the worst marines possible. And a friend of mine was sitting behind me um, and, while I'm watching the movie earlier today. And then I had to pause it and I turned around. And I'm like, okay, they just had one scene in this movie where they cleared a room better than any scene in Doom Annihilation. <laughs> because they actually looked like they knew what they were doing. That's where a budget can come in, right? They can actually train them. They can have somebody as a technical director. And as we also mentioned before the show, all movies with Annihilation in the title apparently do have a poor budget. Yeah, uh, except for the movie that was just called Annihilation. 
um, oh. that came out a couple of years ago. <laughs> but if it's if it's like a something colon annihilation, yeah, you're you're doomed. You're, you're screwed. <laughs> no pun intended. Right? Yeah, no doubt. Um, what did you think of the music in this? Uh, was it memorable? <laughs> Apparently not, because it's not, I I think it was good. It was, but maybe that maybe that's what makes good music is if it's not too overbearing, right? I mean, it seemed time period appropriate. Yeah. Well, so you had kind of the mixture of the original score and then the licensed music that they used. They used a lot of 50s era jazz. Um, so it was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Dramatic Score. Um, Jerry Goldsmith did this score, and I like Jerry Goldsmith a lot. Um, mm-hmm. He lost out to James Horner's score for Titanic because apparently Titanic just took all the Oscars that year. Right. Um, but I, I kind of get what you're saying. Like, it's... it's int- it's not super memorable, but what it reminded me of was um, movies of that era is what it reminded sure. me of. The type of score that you would hear in something from like the mid-50s. Um, so in that way, it, it was. But I enjoyed it. I, I like Jerry Goldsmith's scores. I mean, he did The Rocketeer, which is one of my favorite uh, kind of themes and fanfares is the one from The Rocketeer. Um, wow, he did the music for The Man from U.N.C.L.E back in the 1950s. So hmm. I guess if you're going to get somebody to do a movie set in the 50s, right. get somebody who worked in the 50s. Um, but yeah, I liked it. I, I enjoyed the music in this. But you're right. It's not like, it's not memorable in the way of, uh, say, Jurassic Park, where you like you can hum right. parts of it like it's going to be stuck in your head. But it's definitely, it fit the, the, the theme. And um, I enjoyed it. I was just curious. Oh, he... What was it? In addition, his theme for the Star Trek: The Motion Picture. That's right, James uh, Goldsmith, Jerry Goldsmith did the the Star Trek: The Motion Picture theme, which was also the theme for Next Generation. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, that was. Uh, I was really surprised when I went back and uh, when I finally watched the original uh, or Star Trek: The Motion Picture, I was surprised to hear the well, I should say, slowed down version of the uh, TNG. Yes, opening uh, theme. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everything in that movie was slowed down. <laughs> it was, yeah, it's pretty bad, isn't it? <laughs> it, it was trying to be 2001, is what it was trying mm, to be. Uh, you know, that, makes sense. that that kind of sci-fi. Um, mm-hmm. So box office-wise, this movie did okay. It had um, a 60-something million North American box office. Um, I did look up things like the Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes scores, because I'm always curious how those, um, especially an older movie like this, um, and Metacritic's like 90. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, so Rotten Tomatoes' audience score is 94% for this movie. Um, can you guess what the critic score is? Well, the, based on the way you're talking, I would guess right around 76. 99%. Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> this was... Loved by critics in 97. Um, and that's why it got nominated for something like 10 or 11 uh, Academy Awards and won two and, and you know, was still up for, you know, another nine. Um, it was, this was one of those big ones that year. Can't really do much better on Rotten Tomatoes, really. No, no. Uh, it's like an eight, 8.2 or 8.8 or something on IMDb. Like, it's a well-received movie. And I, and I get it because it's enjoyable. I haven't watched it for a few years, but... 
I this is one of those that I can watch. I can rewatch every few years, and it doesn't get old to me. Mm-hmm. And it really comes down to that acting, all the acting in this. Because um, <clears throat> the director, so this was directed by Curtis Hansen. And that might not sound like a, a name that you've heard before or is very recognizable. Um, sadly, he passed away in 2016 at the age of 71. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and he doesn't, he only has 18 credits to his name. Um, but he did direct uh, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, L.A. Confidential, okay. Wonder Boys. He was the director of 8 Mile. Really? Yeah. Um, that's probably his that LA confidential and eight mile are probably the two uh, best known movies that he did. Um, hmm. You know, and a lot of them are, are smaller ones that I don't recognize. Uh, oh, the river wild was one of his too. Oh, wow. So, you know, he didn't do a ton, um, but you know, he was, he was an interesting, he, he, I think was a great director to have for this because it's really about the characters and he got just great performances out of everybody. The river wild Kevin Bacon movie. That I believe is correct. Let me look. It's I a am, good one. It's where he's a bad guy. Meryl Streep, Kevin Bacon, and oh, David Strathairn again. So, apparently oh, they, he they was her together. husband then in uh, in the. Yes, Tom. Okay, cool. Yeah, he's one of movie. those. Like yeah, he's one of those actors that I don't talk about enough when I when people ask me about actors that I really like, but then I mm. see him in something and I'm like, God, he's really good. I don't know what what it is about him. Uh, I mean, even he had a small role in one of the Born. I think it was Born Ultimatum or something. Um, one of the first three Born movies that he just—I mentioned it earlier—but he can just play that like almost upper crust, like well distinguished gentleman type of character really, really well. Whether it's mm-hmm. somebody in the CIA or or this this character Pierce Patchett, who is you know not a good guy, but uh, he's very charismatic. I think is what it is. There's yes. a, he's got an in, and it's a, it's a unique charisma that he has. Um, Agreed. So yeah, I, it's L.A. Confidential. It's a it's a hell of a movie. Um, if you haven't seen it before, definitely give it a watch. It sounds like you enjoyed it. Yeah, I did. Um, one thing. Uh, can I make mention of one thing real quick? Oh, absolutely. So uh, the fleur de lis or fleur de lis or fleur de lis, however you say that, mm-hmm. uh, was the name of the. His David's what is it? Stray Heron's uh, cl- club, yeah, <laughs> club, club uh, empire, uh, empire, yeah. We'll call it empire. That works. Sure. <laughs> um, and one thing I noticed: so they had the cards. Uh, and I can't remember what what they said on them exactly. Oh, it was uh, Fleur de Lis, whatever you desire. Whatever you desire. Okay. Yeah. And then he saw some other thing that had that emblem or logo on it, which I think, if I'm mistaken, is. I think it's just called the floor, that particular um, shape. But I, I thought it was kind of interesting that he sees that on one other thing and he makes that connection. Like no, nothing else is using that emblem. I, f- I feel like I see that everywhere these days. Right. So that sh- that symbol is a fleur de lis. That's what it's called. Oh, well, that's actually what it's called. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, if you're an NFL fan, you've seen it a million times on the N- on the New Orleans Saints helmet. Um, sure, it sure. isn't. It isn't that uncommon. However, it may have been in the fifties, uh, a yeah, fairly yeah. uncommon thing to see. But you're right. That's kind of a loose, uh, a loose way to connect those, for sure. Um, I just closed a window that I didn't want to close. I hate when right, I do bro. that. It's always annoying. Um, 
we got here? This there we go. LA Confidential. Maybe open this back up. One other thing, I I don't. I guess I'm a little confused whether or not to consider Russell Crowe a good or bad guy at this point, (laughs) because I guess we end up liking him at the end, even though he totally shot that one guy and framed it on himself. (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah. So okay, so here here's kind of how I like to break it down. Guy Pierce's character, Ed Exley, is the Boy Scout, right? He follows the letter of the law. He does, he's not he refuses to take a bribe. He refuses to take a payoff. He refuses to do anything outside of the letter of the law. Bud White is going to follow the spirit of the law. And he has a pro like his character when he sees women in trouble because of what happened to him, the the backstory that they bring up. He just can't turn it off, and he goes nuts. So you're right. He does some terrible things. Uh, he frames that guy and shoots him because he's trying to save that woman. He beats the crap out of that dude. That that scene in the interrogation room, who boy. Like, first of all, yeah. how strong do you have to be to snap one of those chairs like that? Because uh, yeah. th- those chairs are, you know, this is a 1950s wooden chair. Those things are put together strong, and he just he snaps that off. But then to run in there... In a, pol- in a room full of police officers and mm-hmm. put one bullet in the in the barrel or in the chamber and then stick the barrel of the gun in the guy's mouth and click three times. <laughs> like, holy crap. Um, so you're right. It, I think what it is with him, it, at the beginning of the movie, he is, he is the blunt instrument. He is a, uh, you know, muscle for hire type but he he has a good heart he just doesn't know how to not do it he just kind of does what he's told uh Mm -hmm. but he has the arc over the course of the movie where he starts to kind of want to be more and he talks Mm -hmm. about like i'm not smart enough to do that and lynn lynn sort of coaxes him out of it like no you figured this stuff out you're smart and he ironically ends up hitting right but uh but that's another one of those really, really powerful scenes because he snaps at her, right? The uh, Dudley set him up to get pissed off, and it worked. And he went to her, and he's he's stalking back and forth in the rain like a dog because it's basically what he was. He was a dog. He was Dudley Smith's, like, pit bull, right? Mm-hmm. And he kept him on a chain, but he would unleash him when he needed to. And he unleashed him on Ed Exley, but in in that, he gets pissed off. He slaps her, and immediately, you can see in his face, like, oh, shit. He goes into full Hulk mode. He does. He <laughs> absolutely does. And Russell Crowe, to, you know, to the casting director and the director's credit, Russell Crowe is perfect to play that character. Oh, yeah. So... Um, yeah, I mean, he's sort of an anti-hero. He becomes... And and his arc leads him into a better place. Um, it's funny because he becomes more straight and narrow towards the end of the movie, whereas Exley kind of figures out that occasionally you need to bend the rules and not follow the letter of the law in order to get the right thing done. And mm-hmm. it worked for him. Um, One thing I am questioning, though, is at at the beginning, um, so, so um, uh, uh, Exley does rat out the rest of the cops to get promoted is that the deal yes so that's i don't know how i feel about that one really either uh i mean he's by the book 
but yeah, I guess he is writing people out. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he's no, he's by the book, and he is looking to further his career. Right? They mm-hmm. they mention that he's a political animal that he'll just he'll throw anybody under the bus to to help himself, as long as what he's doing is not illegal. Right. So he he and that's the distinction is, Bud I think is, he doesn't want to do anything amoral, but he doesn't mind breaking the rules a little bit. Whereas Exley doesn't want to break the rules but he doesn't care as much about morality and it's sort of the two of them kind of meeting in the middle towards the end of the movie where Exley is gonna gonna have a little less uh a little more moral rigidity and kind of do the right thing for the right reasons and bud is gonna be um that's kind of how i see it so you sort of get that journey between the two of them and together they make a wacky combo yeah if there was ever a sequel to this, it would have been a buddy cop. <laughs> and that way, that way we could have had, uh, they could have gone after Johnny Stompanato so we can hear this again. Cause I, that name is so ridiculous to me. And just hearing Russell Crowe say Johnny Stompanato. And now I have that, I have that captured and it'll always be there. Nice. Um, yeah, this look fun movie. Uh, definitely get out and see it. If you haven't yet, it's one of those that I think gets a little bit lost because it's now, you know, 22 years old, um, which is crazy to me to think that this movie is 22 years old. But um, it's 22 years old, and it had a lot of Oscar buzz at the time, but, you know, it's not really available for streaming anywhere, and it it's looked at really highly by people who have seen it, but I feel like it needs more exposure. So I definitely recommend checking it out if you get a chance, and I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Yeah, for sure. Um, Thanks for uh, inviting me on. Absolutely, absolutely. So I uh, we do this show every week. Um, it's Sunday night, and we record Sunday nights, twitch.tv slash Travis. Uh, I put the new episodes out usually on Wednesdays. Um, the show is called Wait You Haven't Seen, which is a terrible name, so I didn't get that as a website. Uh, the website is just tvstravis.com. Um, I have a gigantic ego, so everything's got to be named after me. Uh <laughs> <laughs> but um, every week we do this. Uh, coming up next week, um, we're actually going to be doing. Uh, we're going to be talking about Mystic River from 2000. I think it was 2003, directed by Clint Eastwood. Um, won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for Tim Robbins. Uh, so in this keeping, one I did see. <laughs> it's a good movie. I haven't seen it in years, so I'm I'm really looking forward to watching it again. It is available on Netflix for streaming. So. If you are listening to the show and you uh, want to watch the movie ahead of time, this will be an easier one for you to watch. Um, yeah, and uh, coming up after that, I know we're going to do Monster with Char- uh, Charlize Theron. Uh, I have not seen that before, so that's going to be a new one for me. Uh, and then coming up also later this month will be Training Day. So that's kind of what we got on tap uh, over the next few weeks. Um, some really heavy movies, a lot of, a lot of heavier subject matter um, coming off of uh, a month of versions of A Christmas Carol and uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We're going a little heavy here, um, but it's it, they're good, critically acclaimed films that will, I'm interested to see what people think having never seen them before. Um, I'm really looking forward to Monster because I hear nothing but good things about it, but, man, I don't, I've, I've seen interviews with Eileen Warnos, and I don't know what to expect. Um, but, uh, yeah, so Shane has been my my lovely co-host for this week. Um, I really appreciate you coming on. It's been fun having you on. 
Uh, we were Thank contestants you. together on America's Next Top Podcaster, uh, season two. Um, we were even teammates for a little while. Uh, what have you got going on right now? Well, what do I have going on right now? I've been doing um, game streaming lately. Uh, that would be on my my Twitch account. That's uh, Shave Maddox lately. Looking to get back. It's been a while since I've actually done a podcast, uh, to be honest, outside of ANTP. Mm-hmm. But uh, looking to possibly get back into my uh, techies show as well. Uh, find that at NiceGuyNetwork.com. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you coming on. It's been a ton of fun. Um, we'll definitely have to have you back uh, sometime in the near future. Sounds great. Um, so you can, like I say, you can find this show at tvstravis.com. And if you do listen to this and you can uh, go to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and give us a review, that helps us a ton. Um, it means a lot, and it helps uh, it helps our this show surface a little bit better given that I decided to name it something horrendously terrible to find. I actually like it. <laughs> I like the title. It's just you type that in, and, and it's it's a weird, like, it's not SEO. It's not search engine optimized at Fair all. Enough. Um, but, uh, Life is good in oh, that's the wrong file there. No, that's not what I wanted to play. <laughs> Tap the wrong button. Don't know. That's me trying to use a damn soundboard. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, until next week with Mystic River, um, We just always like to say for this show, get out and enjoy your movies. This has been Wait You Haven't Seen. Mr. White, Pierce Morehouse, Patchett.